Well, it is great to be back with you all. It is such an honor to be able to actually see you physically with our eyes and just be back together. It has been weeks, it has been months, it has been a while. And I, I personally, you know, I've learned a few things during this time. I'm sure that you've learned a few things too. Uh, something that I recently learned about was the term virtue signaling. Uh, you might already be familiar with that or have heard about that years ago, but it's kind of a popular term that people are using now, virtue signaling. And if you don't know what it is, it's when people feel the need to uh, state their opinions, to uh, state their morality publicly, so that other people can know that, you know, they're on the right side of things, that they're the good guys, that they're politically correct. And virtue signaling has uh, come under criticism for a couple of reasons. Some people say virtue signaling, it's just mere words. Uh, it's emptiness. It's saying, you know, I'm for X or I'm against Y, but there's no real meat behind it. There's no real action behind just the statements that are made. And then others say that virtue signaling is problematic because it reveals uh, a passion, a desire for the approval of others. Uh, we'll often uh, state things or post things or whatever it is so that others can see again that we're the good guys. Man, I know what that's like. I know for me, I like to be seen as the good guy. You know, I want to be the one who's on the right side of things and making the right decisions and for the right things and against the wrong things. And Pastor Mike has graciously reminded me, reminded us uh, over the past few years and even decades that, you know, sometimes an A on earth could be an F in heaven. Or conversely, an F on earth could be an A in heaven. In other words, you know, if the whole world says, yes, A plus, we totally approve of you, God might say, that's not what I intended for you at all. And uh, even though the world might say you're a failure, you're wrong, God might say that's exactly what I called you to. So even though we might be saying the right things and checking the right boxes and getting the right approval from man, what really matters is what does God see? Do we have God's approval? When God goes underneath the surface and looks at the core of our being, the core of our heart, does he see someone that's filled with hate and bitterness? Does he see someone who's focused on herself? Or does he see someone who's focusing on Christ and making things about Jesus as we should? And you know, we're really gonna explore this whole concept over the summer, as we study 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, we've called the power of gentleness. We're going to dig deep and go into some really difficult truths. We're going to pull back those layers and think through some tough things, and it won't be easy. You know, it's not going to be a simple 12 steps or a 10 ways to or three keys, but it's going to contain truth. This passage will contain truth that has the potential to transform our lives for good. So this time, we're going to focus on just 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2. 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2 this time. And we're going to see that God is interested in far more than just our words. He's interested in our lives, in our behaviors, in what we do. He's called us to live out our Christianity and live it in a way that we might end up rejected by the world, but approved by him. So uh, open your Bibles to 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. 
the passage that we're gonna be in. Uh, pull it up on your phone, open it in your Bible, but we need to get our eyes on these truths. And we're gonna spend a while looking through some texts in 1 Peter in how we got here. So you wanna make sure to have that Bible right in front of your eyes as we go through these things. Uh, let me just begin by reading the entire passage to you. First uh, Peter 3, one through six says, likewise wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Well, the text begins, likewise wives, be subject to your own husband. So I wanna just start right out from the get-go with the first point. The first point is willingly yield to your husband's leadership. And as you can see in the point, uh, your husband is in parentheses. The reason why is this text is written to wives. Uh, it's written to women, but we know it's written to wives because it talks about their husbands. And yet, there are principles here that can apply to all women, regardless of whether you're currently married or not. So if you're not married, the point for you would be willingly yield to leadership. And we'll see that as we explore the background of this text. Willingly yield to your husband's leadership. Now, we have to go back in Peter's book and look at his argument to see how we got here. If we don't do this, we're gonna miss out on so much of the rich truth that this passage contains. So I just have to let you know from the start, we're gonna spend a while in point one because we're doing the background work here and we're gonna set ourselves up for the whole summer of tearing this passage apart. So let's just go back to be the beginning, looking at 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1 tells us who this letter was written to and who it was from. Uh, it begins by saying, Peter, an apostle of Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, this is super important that we get that the letters from Peter, one of Jesus' apostles, one of Jesus' three best friends, and uh, it's to Christians who are Gentile Christians, meaning, meaning that they became Christians not from Judaism, but from you know, other ethnicities, uh, Gentile Christians who are scattered throughout Asia Minor, uh, which is in Turkey, which would be the uttermost parts of the earth, not Jerusalem and Judea, but far away. And in this culture, the people in this Greco-Roman society in the first century, they worshiped many gods. Uh, they had gods all over the place that people were expected to bow down to and to worship. And as a result, uh, the people who became Christians and put their hope, their faith, their trust in Christ alone, they were radically persecuted. So let's move to 1 Peter 2, 10 and 11 and get your eyes on this passage. And I want you to see the progression of thought that takes place until we get to our summer chunk. But Peter begins this new argument here in 1 Peter 2, 10 and 11, reminding them, as we saw, that they were the elect in 1-1. That means that they were chosen by God. They are God's people. And he says here in 1 Peter 2, 10, once you were not a people, 
but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So you are the elect, you have become God's kids, even though you weren't of the Jewish faith. And then he tells them, because they're God's kids, in verse 11, beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So he's setting them up, identifying who they are. He's telling them that they're the elect, that they're God's people, they're Christians. And he says in verse 11, you are sojourners and you are exiles. He's teaching them, you are not of this world. This world is not your home. Uh, we see this truth throughout the New Testament. Philippians 3.20 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. When we become Christians, when we place our faith in Christ and turn from our sins, we become citizens of heaven. This is no longer our home. We are like sojourners and exiles just visiting this place. So these truths that we're going to see this summer, uh, the truths of 1 Peter, the passages we're going to look at, these truths are unique to Christians, to God's people, to God's elect, to God's chosen daughters. And then he says in there, because you've been chosen, because you're sojourner and exiles, in 1 Peter 2.12, which scholars call like the, the hinge point of the whole teaching here, uh, 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So you live in a way where when the world's looking at you, they say, that's good conduct. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, and they will, they will accuse us of being evildoers, they may see your good deeds. They may see that you're doing right. You're doing the best you can to live uprightly and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, that they might be able to get saved. And that's the reason that God has us here. The second that we become Christians, he could translate us up to heaven, but he's got a mission for us. He sends us as his kids, as sojourners and exiles in this place on a special mission to do his work. And that is to do good deeds, to live good lives so that people might get saved. We're here so that people might get saved. And if you want, if you have a paper Bible open, circle this whole verse, because this is really the heart of the teaching that the other teachings stem from, and we'll refer back to it. Uh, when they refer to you as evildoers. Now, back then in the first century, you might be surprised to learn that the early church was accused of being cannibals, they were accused of practicing orgies and being atheists. Uh, they were accused of being cannibals because people heard that they got together and they celebrated Christ by taking bread and juice in remembrance of him, in remembrance of his body and blood that was shed. And they said, they're eating each other's body and blood. They didn't understand. They heard about this commitment that they had to one another that was unusual, that wasn't like a normal family commitment. They loved each other. They were committed to each other. They sought the good of one another, no matter who they were or where they were from. They were even called to greet one another with a holy kiss, and they started to spread rumors about them that they were participating in orgies. And then they were called atheists. Atheists, you might think atheists because they did not bow down to the gods of Rome. They rejected the gods of Rome and so they were called atheists. They were hated and despised. And you know what? We can be hated and despised too in our culture, can't we? We can be called self-righteous. We can be called narrow-minded. Uh, we can be called judgmental. We can be seen as people who try to ruin everybody's fun, people who are hypocritical. Uh, the world accuses us of being evildoers as well. So what's the solution? Remember, 1 Peter 2.12 said the solution is live your life in a way that you are living a righteous life, doing good deeds so that when they see you, when they see your behavior, they'll be silenced and some will get saved. 
So we might say, okay, that's great then. What specifically do we do? And Peter reveals that. He reveals that to different groups or different categories of people. And the first one that he begins with is in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. The following verses here. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now this is to all Christians. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, if you want to do these good deeds, if you want to win people to Christ as we should, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, your good deeds, you put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free. You're free in Christ. You're citizens as heaven, but you've been sent on a mission. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants or slaves of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So again, we are citizens of heaven. We are free, but we've been sent on a mission. We are slaves or servants of God, and we are doing his work. And we are to submit or subject ourselves to the emperor, to the ruling authorities. And back then, the emperor at this time of this writing was probably Nero or Claudius, and either one, uh, they were not good guys. They were not nice guys at all, and they did a lot to bring harm to Christians or to the people of God. And yet, if you go back to 2.13, and you even want to circle it, because we're going to see this uh, thought process developed, be subject for the Lord's sake, be subject to, circle that. That's the Greek word hupotasso. Uh, hupo means under, tasso is to line yourself up underneath, line yourself up underneath the governing authorities is what God is teaching us here. So we want to hupo tasso, arrange ourselves underneath their leadership. And then we see the same thing in 1 Peter 2, 18, 18 through 20. We see another group addressed. He says, servants, be subject to. There's that hupotasso again. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only the good and gentle, but also the unjust. Uh, people will be treated unjustly, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good, the good deeds again, doing what God's called us to do, and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So Peter now going to the most oppressed people in that culture, the slaves, the servants, and saying, you know what, even though you're the lowest on the social totem pole, even though you're the bottom feeder, so to speak, in the community, if you're in Christ, you have a special mission too. You're not a citizen of this earth either. You're a citizen of heaven. You're God's kid and you have a mission, you have a purpose, you have a reason for being here. Now, some people were uh, poor. Uh, again, this was usually an economic thing. People were poor, and so they would uh, put themselves in a place of servanthood or slavery in order to meet their financial needs. Uh, they chose to get into this, and they could choose to get out of that. We see it in 1 Corinthians 7.21, if you want to just jot that down. 1 Corinthians 7.21, where Paul says, hey, were you a bondservant? Were you a slave when you were called? Uh, don't be concerned concerned about it. Don't freak out about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Hey, if you have the opportunity to get out of that, that would be great. You can get out of that. But, you know, don't be primarily concerned about that because you're on a mission. God's got something for you. And then there were people who were enslaved by others, uh, not by their free choice. Uh, we see that way back in the beginning. In the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, uh, Genesis 37 to 50, we see Joseph, this young Hebrew man who was sold into slavery by his brothers. 
And you know, God never approves of that. That is unjust, that is wrong, and God never gives the thumbs up to someone kidnapping someone and selling them into slavery. There's no way that God would say that that's right, but he would say, even if you're at the lowest place in the economic totem pole, if you belong to Christ, no matter what injustices you incur in this life, God sees and God will reward you for every single injustice that you incur in this life. And so if we look back at 1 Peter 2.18, there's that word again, servants be subject to, circle that, hupotasso, line yourself underneath your boss or your master. Align yourself underneath them because we're on a mission from God and he has a plan for our life. And then he gives us this great example. In case we're confused, in case we don't understand what he's talking about, he gives this great example and you can you know, put a box around this if you want or write that 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23 is our example. Even write example and put a line to these three verses. It says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Here's your example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He did nothing wrong. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus, God who took on human flesh, he knew that God would judge all sin. He knew that no one, is gonna get away with any injustice, that God will judge all wrongdoing and all injustice, that every single sin will be judged either in hell or on the cross. And Jesus knew that, and he was able to go on even suffering unjustly because he knew that one day God would make everything right and no one would get away with anything. And that's why passages like Romans 12, 19 tell us to never avenge ourselves, not to get our own vengeance because God is going to take care of this. And again, this is for Christians. This is a uniquely Christian response to unjust suffering because this is not our home. This is not it for us. We're on a mission. God has an assignment for us, and we need to respond differently than the world. That word there that's uh, translated as example, it's a neat Greek word. Uh, It also has that prefix hupo. It's hupogramos, and it described a template that was used at the time, a template with the letters of the alphabet on it. And children would take this template and they would place a piece of paper, so to speak, over that template, and they would trace the letters of the alphabet, learning to draw the alphabet, learning to follow that pattern and mark out those lines and shapes so clearly that they could draw the alphabet. And that's the same thing that Christ is for us. He's our template. And we take our lives like that paper and we put it over the template and we learn to follow his patterns. We learn to draw so that we look like he looked. That's what we're all called to do. And then in verses 24 and 25, it gives us the purpose of following Jesus's life. The purpose here, if you want to mark this as the purpose, in 24 and 25, it says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He saved us so that we could do good deeds again, die to sin, live to righteousness. By his wounds, we've been healed. We were straying like sheep, but now we've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And then we go to the next group in 1 Peter 3, 1, our summer passage, right? Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So now he speaks to wives, citizens, servants, and wives. Same Greek word there, be subject to. We have a special mission 
We have a mission from God if we're married, and that is we are to be subject to our husbands. And you can circle that, be subject to. Same Greek word, hupotasso. You know what even goes on more? If you look at 1 Peter 3, 7, 1 Peter 3, 7 begins with, likewise husbands. They've got an assignment too. God's got an assignment for them as well. Likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. So we've got these four specific groups here, citizens, servants, wives, and husbands. And then 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9 is the final address to everybody. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. This is about us realizing, again, this is not our home. We're here to do God's work. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. We are called to do good even in the face of evil, even in the face of unjust suffering. That is what Christ calls us to as his kids. So as we focus on 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, as we focus on this call, this charge to us as wives, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Arrange yourself underneath your own husband's leadership. And the text clearly says your own husband, which is nice because it doesn't mean we need to arrange ourselves under every single man, but clearly we need to arrange ourselves under our husband's leadership. Remember that charge in 1 Peter 2.12, so that the world would see our good deeds, so that it would silence them of accusations against us, and so that some might be saved. But it really goes back much further than that. It goes back to God's design for marriage and for order in marriage. Uh, if you look at Colossians 3.18, you can just jot that reference down. Colossians 3.18 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. This is God's design for husbands and wives. And then Ephesians 5.22 through 24 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That's Ephesians 5, through 24. Again, this is God's design for husbands and wives. And this has nothing to do with our worth. Nothing whatsoever to do with our worth. It's just our assignment it's just what Jesus has assigned us to in this life. Uh, Galatians 3.28, one of my favorite, favorite verses. Galatians 3.28 says, in Christ, if you are in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. You are equal in Christ. There's neither slave nor free. It doesn't matter how much money you make or what your job is or your title or your role. There's neither slave nor free. It doesn't matter what your economic status is. There's neither male nor female. God doesn't care what your gender is. You are all equal in his sight. Every single human being has been created in the image of God and has incredible value to him. And if you're in Christ, you belong to him and we are all equal. We know these women that he talked to, these wives from 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1, were God's elect, right? They were God's daughters. These are women who belong to Jesus. They had incredible worth. So it has nothing to do with worth. It's your assignment in life. And that's okay. Marriage was designed by God and order in marriage was also designed by God. And order in marriage, it's not a bad thing. It has nothing to do with sin. It's not bad at all to have order or authority or structures in life. There's an interesting verse in 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 11.3. And you might want to jot this one down and look it up later. But 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, I want you to understand. So understand this. The head of every man is Christ. 
the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. Yes, the head of Christ is God. Uh, Jesus is God. And yet within the Trinity, there's order. They're equal, just like we're all equal in the sight of God. The Father, Son, and the Spirit are equal, and yet they have different assignments or different roles, and that's okay. It has nothing to do with sin. It's just order for the sake of things functioning right. And you might say, well, you keep saying it has nothing to do with sin, but isn't submission or being subject to our husbands part of the curse that was placed on Eve? Isn't that what Genesis says? Uh, no, no, actually, if you look at Genesis 3.16, where the curse was given to Eve for her disobedience, Genesis 3.16 says, to the woman he said, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Okay, if we've had kids, we know that one. Then it says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Uh, you will subject yourself or submit yourself to your husband, but you know what? It's going to be hard now because of the curse. So it's not like the submission is the curse, but the fact that it's hard is part of the curse. And we see the same thing in God's pronouncement to Adam. He told him, now you're going to work by the sweat of, the, of your brow. The ground is going to produce thorns and thistles for you. This is going to be hard now. Uh, Adam worked before he sinned. There's nothing wrong with work, but work became hard. Uh, there's nothing wrong with order in relationships, but now it's gonna become hard for us. And even though it may go against our desires, and it often does, God says, if you're a wife, he wants you to subject yourself, to submit to, to line up underneath the desires of your husbands for the sake of order. That's just what he's called us to. Uh, there's a kind of a neat illustration of this that I read about a man who was hiking in these cliffs. Uh, he was hiking in these cliffs, a very rocky area, not a lot of plants or anything. And there were these narrow ledges in the cliffs that you could just barely walk on. I mean, think of a narrow ledge where you can just barely get your feet on there. And if you, you know, move too far to the right or the left, you'll be off the cliff. And he said he saw this uh, mountain goat going up this very narrow ledge and the mountain goat had just enough room for his feet. And as he was watching, he said he saw another mountain goat coming down the same ledge and he had just enough room for his feet. And he said the two mountain goats got to a place where they met and they just locked eye to eye. There was nothing they could do. I mean, they weren't able to travel backwards the way that we can. They wouldn't be able to turn around. There was nothing they could do. They were at a standstill. And then he said, as he watched this incredibly unique, neat thing happened, he said, the mountain goat that was on its way up suddenly got down on its stomach and laid itself down on that narrow ridge. And the mountain goat that was going down literally stepped over him. And the two got up and went on their own way. I mean, what a neat picture of putting yourself underneath somebody else for the sake of both lives, right? Both are spared. It's just order so that things will function right. You arrange yourself underneath. And you might think right now, mm, I'm still not feeling it. I mean, the whole mountain goat thing's really cute, but I ain't doing that. I'm not going to get my stomach down in the dirt and let my husband walk right over me. Well, you know what? Think about this. As Christians, this is what we've all been called to. I mean, think about Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, have this mindset, okay? This is the way that we're supposed to be thinking. And the mindset, the example, again, is Jesus. Jesus, who was God. I mean, you can't get any higher than God, right? Jesus was God, and he took on human flesh, and he was found as a human being. So he lowered himself to take on human flesh for our sake. And then the text goes on, says not only was he found as a human, he took on the form of a servant or a slave. 
And then he went even lower than that, the bottom that you could go in that culture. He went to a slave's execution rack in his death on a cross for us. So you've got Jesus, the highest you can possibly be, going to the absolute low in society. And that is the mindset that we are called to have as Christians. That's the mission that God has sent us all on. And so we have to think, I mean, are we doing that? Are we submitting ourselves to our husband's leadership? Are we subjecting ourselves to their wishes and wants and desires? If you're married and someone were able to ask your husband right now, how well are you doing at this? And let's say they were to answer completely transparently and honestly, what would they say? How well are you doing at this? I mean, the food that you purchase and you eat, is it always what you want, your desires, your likes, your preferences, or your kids, or is it your husband's? Uh, the house that you live in, maybe they want to live in a different house, bigger house, smaller house, but maybe no, you live where you want to live. The vacations that you go on, where your kids do or don't go to school. I mean, we could go on and on and on with this, right? But we got to be honest right now. Ask ourselves honestly in our marriage, who's submitting to who? Who's subjecting themselves to who? And if you aren't married, and I know that uh, many of you here aren't married, how would those who are in authority over you respond to that? I mean, what would they say? How well do you do subjecting yourself to their wishes and their desires? Ephesians 5.21 tells us that we're all to be submitting ourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. And if you're not married, this should really motivate you to find a Christian man. Because if you're going to spend your life submitting to him and subjecting yourself to him, make sure that he's a godly man. And you might be thinking, I am married and my husband's not a godly man. So where does that leave me? And the great thing is the text addresses this. The text addresses this as we look again at 1 Peter 3, 1. Wives, subject yourself to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, even if some are not Christians, if they don't obey the word, if they don't obey the scriptures, if they don't obey the gospel of God, Remember, this is written to Christians who were scattered throughout Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, the Roman Empire. There were all these gods everywhere in that culture, and it was critical that people worship the gods of Rome. Uh, they had national gods, they had local gods, they had household gods, and people genuinely believed that if there was a person who didn't bow to these gods, they were going to bring trouble on the whole culture that the gods would be angry and not respond with favor because of that individual who wasn't, wasn't bowing to these gods. And so you've got these Christian wives here with these often ungodly or unchristian or unsaved husbands who are expecting them to bow to the household gods, to bow to the local gods, to bow to the national gods. And Peter empowers them in a sense and says, no, you need to hold fast to Christ. You need to do what God wants you to do. You need to do good in God's sight. So there are times that women aren't called to subject themselves to their husband's desire. And that would be when their husband wants them to do anything that's contrary to biblical law or biblical principle. And that's why it's important that when we can subject ourselves, we do over non-moral issues, that we don't fight over things that don't really matter in the end. You know, the same thing was true of the servants or the slaves. The text said, when you do good and are beaten for it. Why would someone be beaten for doing good? Because they were doing things God's way instead of man's way. And that's just going to happen in this life. When we do things God's way, instead of man's way, people will end up getting angry. And it's okay. It's okay. Peter says, keep on. Keep on doing good. God sees. He knows. Look at 
1 Peter 3, 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Christian suffering is never without purpose. One day God will make everything up to us in the end. It will all be made right. And so the passage says, be subject to your own husbands so that even the ones who do not obey the word, who aren't Christians, who don't live according to God's laws and God's principles, might be one, might end up being saved. And that's so mind-blowing if you think about it. In that culture, a wife was never allowed to worship a God other than her husband's God. And Peter's saying, not only is that true, but I want you to win your husband over to Christ. I want you to get your husband to follow Christ as well. And so how does he say that we do that? We do that without a word. That's what the text says, without a word. And we need to explore for a minute what that means. And we're going to go into point two. Point two and three are going to go quickly. The second point is let the spirit do his work. Let the spirit do his work in your husband. Uh, if you don't have a husband, let the spirit do his work in the lives of those that you're dealing with. But the Holy Spirit is the one who changes lives, not us. We let the Spirit do his work to the unsaved. There's a great passage, John 16, 8. John 16, 8 says, when he comes, the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So it's God's Holy Spirit that convicts the world, convicts the heart of the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then also for those who are saved. I mean, think about passages like Galatians 5 that talks about the fruit of the spirit beginning in verse 15 and or 16 and wrapping up in verse 25 talking about following the spirit being led by the spirit keeping in step with the spirit it's god's holy spirit that makes changes in people's lives so we have to ask are we expecting our husbands to be led by the spirit or by us right We've got to let the spirit do his work because we can nag and nag and nag and force him to do what we want. But you know what happens if you pressure and nag and pressure and nag and pressure and nag? You might get him to do what you want, but after time, it fizzles away because it wasn't from God's Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit reworks a person from the inside out and makes those changes from the inside out, makes changes that are real and that last and are good. I uh, remember hearing a Christian couple that was talking about their experience. They were a Christian couple who served in their church, and the wife liked to have these discussions with her husband. And the husband said he hated the discussions. Um, he said after they had the discussions, they usually end up saying things that they regretted. Uh, after the discussion times, things would end up worse than they were before. And yet she wanted to constantly have these discussions about him and her and how things were going. Well, it got to the point one time where she was so frustrated with him, being a Christian, she said to him, why don't you ever do what God's spirit wants you to do? And he replied with, why don't you shut up so that I can? You know, it gets to a point where we can be talking so much that somebody can't even hear God's spirit anymore. It's always all about us. And so we have to get out of the way and let the spirit do his work. I mean, we see these uh, these statements that would say this nagging wife, this pressuring wife, this wife with many words is not right before God, even in the Proverbs. Proverbs 27, 15 says that a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. You know, that dripping, you're trying to sleep at night, it's raining, you keep hearing that dripping coming from the side of your house, it's hard to sleep. This is what it's like for a man who has a quarrelsome or a wordy wife. What about Proverbs 25, 24? And that's an easy one to remember, 25, 24. It says, it's better to live 
in a corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Now, uh, back then, the housetops were to shelter people from the rain, from the wind, from the sand, from the elements. And this passage is saying, you know what? Better to get out of all of that good protection and be sitting there alone on the corner of your housetop than to be underneath that roof with a quarrelsome wife, a wife who's constantly pushing and pressuring and nagging. Now, does that mean we never talk? No, not at all. Our husbands are our friends. We talk to our friends. We have dialogues and discussions. We share our opinions. We even can get passionate about our opinions. But it means that when we want to change them, we don't do it by constant nagging and constant words. I mean, if they're unsaved, we've got to share the gospel with them, right? But we don't keep pressuring and pressuring with those nagging words. And there are ways that we can work with God's Spirit rather than against God's Spirit. Uh, there are lots of ways that we can work with the Spirit of God. The first should be obvious. We can be praying, praying for our husbands, right? I mean, if you're praying them, you pray that God's Spirit would do His work. If he's not saved, that God would convict him concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, and that if he is, that God would bear the fruits of the Spirit in his life. We affirm them when we see them doing things that are moving towards godliness, save or unsaved. You know, I saw when you read the Bible the other day, or I saw when you, you know, taught our kids about Scripture, I saw when you went to church or whatever, and that was good. I so appreciate that. Thank you for doing that. We have to be selfless. This isn't about us. Our mission is to get people saved, even if it's our husband. And so let's say that our husband says, I need to go back to church, or I want to go to church, or I want to meet with these Christian men, or I want to do partners or something. We don't say, oh, that's the day I wanted you to do all these chores around the house. Uh, no, you be selfless. You, you work in a way so that it will be a good uh, catalyst to him seeking God and getting more right with God. Uh, be humble. Be teachable. Be humble. If he comes along and corrects you, corrects your thinking, corrects your theology, corrects even your cooking, be humble. Receive the correction. Receive the teaching and the instruction without bristling up and getting angry. Be interested in him. Get interested in his life. It makes such a big difference. Get interested in his life. If he's interested in motorcycles, get interested in motorcycles. Not because you're interested in motorcycles, but because you're interested in him, right? So if you get interested in the things that he's interested in, then you're interested in him, and that's what we need to do. We also need to be hopeful. And that hopefulness keeps us from being crushed and despondent and despairing when things don't go the way we want. And they won't. There'll be lots of times that they just don't work out the way that we want, but we've got to remain hopeful without being crushed. And the purpose is so that he may be one, so that he may be gained for the kingdom of God without a word, as the text says, by the conduct of the wives. The goal is to win him for Christ. And that word there translated as win, it's used in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 22, five times. Five times that same Greek word for win. And it's so neat to see what Paul says here when he uses the word. 1 Corinthians 19, 9, 19 through 22. He says, for though I am free from all, that's the same thing we've been learning, right? We're free in Christ. I have made myself a servant, a slave to all, that I might win them. That's what we're called to do, to win our husbands, uh, to win the world. To the Jews, I became a Jew to win Jews. And then he goes on to those who are under the law. I became as one under the law to win them. He says to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law in order to win them. Uh, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. He's saying I was willing to do whatever it would take to win people to Christ. And if God's saying here in his word, this is what it takes for you as a wife. 
You win him without excessive words, but by your behavior. He needs to see your behavior, your good deeds. That's what God's called us to. So we have the power to work with God's Holy Spirit and help God to change lives, even our husband's life, not by our excessive words, but by our behavior. So that's our third and final point. This is gonna go real fast. Third and final point, show your husband what you believe. Show your husband what you believe. And if you want, you can take your husband out of there and just say, show whomever what you believe, whoever you're working with. Let them see it through your actions, through your deeds, through the way that you live, through your conduct. Uh, the text says there in 1 Peter 3, 1 and 2, they may be one without a word by the conduct, by your behavior, by what you do. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, same word used twice there in these two verses. They need to see what you're doing. They need to see you live this out. And that takes us all the way back to our 1 Peter 2.12, where we began. Same thing. It says, so that when the Gentiles speak against you, they may see with their eyes your good deeds. Same thing here. Our husbands need to see with their eyes our behavior and our conduct, and it's called to be two things respectful and pure respectful and what's really interesting is respectful there it's actually in the Greek it says in fear pure uh, the Greek text says in fear pure and in fear is translated as respectable respectful so in fear does that mean in fear of our husbands in fear of the government in fear of you know bosses, masters? No. Throughout 1 Peter, God calls us, Peter calls us to fear one person and one person alone, and that is God. Uh, we see that, for example, in 1 Peter 2, 17, it says, fear God. And then when we go ahead in August, when we get to explore uh, verse 6 of 1 Peter 3, it says, you are Sarah's children if you do good and do not fear. So we don't fear people. We aren't called to fear people, but we are called to fear God. And that fear of God uh, drives us to obey him because we don't want to displease him. We realize that one day we're going to stand before what's called the judgment seat of Christ as Christians. Uh, that's in 2 Corinthians 5.10, if you want to jot that down. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, one day all of us, all Christians, all of us right here will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And you know what's going to happen? Jesus is going to evaluate our lives as Christians and reward us accordingly. And if you are married, if you are a wife, you know what one of the terms of your evaluation will be? How did you submit to your husband? How did you subject yourself to your husband? That was a role that I called you to. That's an assignment that I gave you. How well did you do that? And you might be saying, yeah, but you don't know. You don't know my husband. You don't know my family. I mean, if I subject myself to him, if I submit myself to him, he's going to ruin everything. Oh, well, right? I, we're citizens of heaven. This is not our home. We're on an assignment. If he, quote, unquote, ruins everything, oh, well, then he ruined everything. What difference does it make? God's calling us to subject ourselves to our husbands. If you disagree with the decision that they want to make, you can talk about it. Just say, hey, concerning that decision, I disagree. I'm not on the same page, and I just want to let you know that. But whatever you decide, oh, well, if it's a non-moral issue, oh, well. And you might say, yeah, well, this submission thing is fun and it's great. It's fun for everybody else. But I'm doing really good in this area. And I know how other women are not doing well. And I'm just glad that these other women are hearing it because I don't need to hear it. Well, maybe you're doing really well at the submission thing because you got a really great husband. And maybe it's easy for you to submit or to subject yourself to him. But you know what Jesus said in Luke 12, 48? I know you all know this. To whom much is 
given, much is required, right? So if you've been given a lot, if you've got a super husband, then you should be a super submitter, right? Because God's going to judge you on accordance to what you've been given. And so we need to excel in these things. We need to do great on these things. And you might say, but you don't know me. You don't know the way I am, the way that I'm wired. I mean, I'm Italian. <laughs> it's not going to work. Trust me. It's not going to work when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. No. If we're married, God calls us to submit ourselves to our husbands without a word and to live this stuff out, knowing that we will be judged on this. And then he says the pure there. The pure simply means without any moral defect. Absolutely pure, no moral defect. We're not putting our trust in the wrong things. We're not putting our trust in money. We're not putting our trust in our health or in our jobs, or in our reputation, or in our children, or any of those things. You might say, well, I'm not. I don't think. I don't, I don't know. How do I know? How do you know? Wait and see when one of those gets interrupted how you respond. I mean, when money becomes a challenge, or you might have health problems, or problems with your kids, or problems with your reputation, or whatever it is. If when things become problematic, you crumble, and implode and fall apart, it can reveal that you're basically saying Christ is not enough. I mean, Christ is just not enough for you. He's not sufficient for you. Because when these things are taken away, you just fall apart. You're despairing and disparaging and your husband's watching you, and especially if he's a non-believer, watching you thinking you're really no different than everybody else. And that's what the world might think too when they watch us. If we fall apart at the same things they fall apart about, they look at us and say, how are you guys any different? And you're telling me that Christ is sufficient, Christ is enough, and yet he's not enough for you. We know that's not true. We know that's not true. And so we've got to work to live this out. God graces us with this power to change lives without a word, but by our behavior. And we're going to keep exploring that all summer, this power of gentleness. So at this point, just based on uh, verses one and two, we can kind of define gentleness as a willingness to yield, subjecting ourselves to, right? Willingness to yield without excessive words, it's motivated by the fear and the purity. So motivated by a fear of displeasing God and pure devotion to Christ. So just based on one and two, again, gentleness, a willingness to yield without excessive words, motivated by a fear of displeasing God and pure devotion to Christ. You might have heard of Lee Strobel before. Uh, he used to be a reporter for the Washington Post. He called himself an atheist. He was married to his wife, Leslie, and he talks about a time that his wife, Leslie, came home and announced that she had become a Christian. Uh, he said he was devastated. He thought, oh no, who have I married? I mean, what is this going to be like? This is going to be a total drag. And he said, instead, I was pleasantly surprised, even fascinated. He said, by the fundamental changes in her character, in her behavior, her integrity, and her personal confidence. We're going to explore more of that in the next couple sessions in July and in August. This, you know, integrity and personal confidence, what it means to really be this woman of Christ. And he says, eventually, I wanted to get to the bottom of what was prompting these subtle and significant shifts in my wife's attitudes. So I launched an all-out investigation into the facts surrounding the case for Christianity. And we know that he wrote Case for Christ, He's written case for everything, right? Case for Easter, case for the resurrection, case for everything out there that has to do with a Christian doctrine by now. He's done so much to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And it was spurred on 
The catalyst in that was the behavior of his godly wife. You know, may all of us, married or not, may we all, from this day forward, may we make the choice to live our lives in such a way that the watching world will look at us and they will see that we are people who know and love Jesus as they observe our good behavior, our good deeds, and see that we are putting him above ourselves, willing to be subject to all, that Christ might be glorified in the world. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these outstanding women that you have chosen to be here. God, your, your elect Christian women, God, what an honor to be here with them. God, I pray that you would help us all if we're married to subject ourselves to our husbands, to their wishes and their desires, Lord God, to do so joyfully, knowing that we're completing the assignment that you've given us, Lord. God, if we're not married, and even if we are married too, that we would subject ourselves to all the authorities in our lives, that we wouldn't see it as a bad and terrible and horrific thing but that we would see it's a joy again and an honor to be able to fulfill our assignment in life. God, I pray that you would help us not to use excessive words, that we would be people who talk and dialogue and discuss and laugh and share opinions, but not to be people who nag and pressure anyone, Lord. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work in the lives of those that we care so much for, Lord. And I pray, God, that they would see you through our behavior. God, help us to live those uh, respectful lives, lives that are fearful of the coming judgment in a good and healthy way, and that we would live lives, Lord, that are pure, that our devotion to Christ would be so pure that people would see that our hope our sufficiency is in Christ alone. God, again, thank you so much for everything. Thanks for letting us come back again, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.